Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and welcome to my podcast, The 20-Minute Scriptorian, where I explore the LDS scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. I'm a longtime gospel doctrine teacher, sometime institute and seminary teacher, and a current theology student. My friends and I are often discussing history, context, and theology, and thought that you might appreciate it too. I think of it as a bridge between academic and inspiration. However, these opinions are my own and not an official representation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks again for listening, and I hope this will be a blessing to you on the road to discipleship. Welcome back, Scriptorians. We are headed into the epistle to the Colossians, epistle to the Colossians, where we learn one of the biggest threats that was challenging the church at the time is is in this letter, as well as this may be the letter that is the most centered on Christ of any of the letters in the New Testament. So stay tuned as we jump into not only the biggest threat, but the most Christocentric of all the letters from Paul. All right. So as you remember, this is Come Follow Me. We are in the towards the end of October and we are headed into the we're in the prison epistles now the prison epistles are when Paul is writing to the uh, from Rome he is in jail towards the end of his life and he is writing to a number of the churches and so the which ones are they you probably wonder which uh, Ephesians Philippians Colossians and Philemon or Philemon and so he's going to write a number of letters so they're they're called that but it's just something to keep it in your mind because they have some of the same themes and they come from Paul at the same time. Now, Colossae. Colossae, let's do a little, in All About, sorry, I forgot to remind you that you already know, in the All About series, we take a step back and talk about the setting, the context, what's going on, some of the structure, so that when we dive into the actual scriptures, we may have some idea what they're talking about. So that's what All About is for Colossians. Now, the first thing is how to pronounce it. You'll hear it every way. We obviously don't say it anything like they did. So don't worry about how you say it. Just jump in, say it louder um, is what I've always learned. But uh, Colossae is a city in what we, we call today modern day Turkey. And it is a little bit internal of in the middle of the town or middle of uh, the, the landmass there. But it is a church that wasn't started by Paul. So Paul tells us in chapter two that he did not start this church and so but he finds that he's kind of taking possession of it as one of the apostles and so he's going to write this letter to them um, describing it and so in uh, Laodicea uh, they mention um, they mention it um, is being very prominent in the area it was an Asian province about 200 years before the Romans made it a, a province and it was the capital of a district of about 25 towns. So the Romans also changed the road system. And so uh, Laodicea and then Colossae become kind of this important place. Now at this point, it was a crossroads. And so the road kind of came from Ephesus way over on the west. And it came through here into the mountains. And it was a city that was ideally suited then because of these roads for commerce and banking and general prosperity, which is where you're going to hit the revelation um, versus Revelation 3, 14 through 22 is talking about this town. So so anyway, just, just something there. But there, a river comes through there. Um, the river, I love it, it's the Meander River and the Little Meander and came through there. And uh, as such is coming up against these mountains, they had a lot of earthquakes. Um, 
but they had a lot of resources. So at one point it had been a very big city and, and then had suffered over the time, but had a uh, wool, gar uh, mining, uh, fishing, banking, a number of things as well as chalk and uh, chalk. They use chalk for dyeing cloth. And so I had a lot of different industry here. I don't know why that's interesting, but it's kind of interesting to me from um, ranching in the valley and, and all this different stuff going on is there. Um, they are part of uh, a joint venture of kind of three different churches that were in the area. So not only uh, uh, a couple other cities right there. So Paul probably had gone in through Laodicea and, and then Hierapolis and and gone through these three cities but mixed population most of them were probably from that area but there's also military commercial heritage and greeks probably showed up at one point and lastly jews so jews are there as well romans were obviously interested in the politics and so lots of different groups so the exact population isn't really known how mixed it was but we can tell that there are both jews and gentiles um, living there now, I did mention that Paul did not found it. He says that in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, hey, I didn't even find this church, but he thought it was his responsibility. And he thinks, I better address some of the problems. Now, you remember, that's usually what Paul's doing in the letters as he's addressing a problem in writing and saying, hey, there's something I'm concerned about. And because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he is going to write to all the Gentile congregations. And so this is what we can kind of conclude conclude from his letter is that he's uh, writing it, even though he's never probably met all of these people. Um, and he is going to talk about a, a general misunderstanding. So that's kind of it. Um, who founded it then? Who uh, we think it was uh, uh, Epaphras. And so Epaphras was one of his uh, fellow prisoners and he was a Colossian. We learned that in uh, chapter four. So Epaphras, who was also a servant and was sent and Paul said that they the Colossians had heard word from Epaphras, so we think it might have been Epaphras. I don't know. I don't know why it's interesting, but you'll see these names and kind of put together the pieces of who it was. So why is Paul writing? Well, really, it's two parts. It's a two-part letter. And the first part is what we talked about in the introduction is that is that there is a... Why did he write this letter at all? And the first thing is that false teachers seem to be threatening, and they're trying to undermine what Epaphras had taught. And so really kind of scary right is that these implications of these teachers coming in are they're they're removing this strong foundation of the church and they're they're shaking that foundation and they are not teaching correct doctrines and theology and so paul is quick to correct that so the the foundations of the church itself are threatened by these these incorrect and false teachers so he is going to write them to um to kind of piece this back together and say, hey, that's that's an issue. So you're going to see that. Um, the other section is it's going to talk the most about Christ and this commitment to Christ and what it means to be a Christian and what it means to, for him to have um, uh, the atonement and the sacrifice of Christ is, is really hit pretty heavily here. And so that's that's the first thing you're going to find in in kind of the structure. One thing I think it's important if you're taking a step back and going to study these are these why we call them the prison letters and and how it's best to study them together. While it, as we talked about in a couple episodes last, we talked about the Philippians not having really problems. It, it, it seems the Ephesians, the Colossians, and then the letter to Philemon or Philemon seems to and and uh, the it seems that what was happening is Paul wrote these letters and then he had 
uh, Epaphras and Onesimus, it looks like one, Onesimus, Onesimus uh, was taking the letter back. And Onesimus is, an, is a slave. And he, uh, this is what we learned about in the letter to, to Philemon. And Philemon is the slave owner. And Paul is writing a letter about this converted slave, Onesimus. And obviously, if you were an escaped slave, you could be killed uh, for this. And it was very grave. And Paul is writing and sending him back and saying, forgive him. And, and we're going to see that in, in uh, Philemon. But this they're carrying this letter back, uh, these letters. And so they kind of go together because they were written probably around the same time. And then they're sent back together with the slave taking these things back. So, um, and I for those of you who speak Greek, feel free to tease me because I never say these names the same way twice. So anyway, uh, so that's kind of what's going on here. And that will help you actually understand it. Now, I think something that's value is to study them a little bit together because you're going to see specifically in Ephesians and Colossians and f a little bit in Philemon, you're going to see some of the same themes, probably because they were having some of the same problems, but also because they're being written at the same time. And, and I think it helps to put it all together. They're not very long. So we keep saying these letters, but they're, they're not very long. So you can certainly jump back and forth. Now, Philippians, as we mentioned, is a little bit different. And Colossians has this um, problem where they're having these false teachers, which doesn't seem to have extended outside this area right here. So, so that is a little bit unique to them. So if you study them, you might say, hey, they're a little, they've got some things in common and, and some differences, but I think there's something to be learned by studying them together. So take a look at that and why they are often studied together. It's not only the Paul writing from prison, but the topics and things being discussed uh, tie together a lot of times. Like I mentioned, one of the biggest issues is this false teachers and what they were doing is, and you can kind of piece it into it a little bit, but these teachers were basically taking Christ out of Christianity. And at first glance, ask yourselves, is that happening today? Is this, is this letter to the Colossians applicable for us today? Are we taking Christ out of the church? Um, Ask yourselves that first in your own worship. Are we taking Christ out of the church? I I think mostly no. I think we try very hard to keep Christ in the church. The emphasis on focusing on the name of the church, the focus on the Sabbath day and the worship at, at sacrament, the uh, changing our lives to become more like him and focusing on the salvific work, both of missionary work for the living and the temp growth of temples, it all seems to be about the saving work of Christ. And yet sometimes do we maybe get caught up in something else? Do we get caught up in some other practice of the church or in uh, making sure we check a box? or just, I, don't, I don't know, but I think it's worth looking at. If Do we take Jesus out of the church just because we get so busy or maybe we forget the focus? Um, that's that might be true. I think we actually do a pretty good job, uh, but always worth pondering. Additionally, then take a wider look. Do we think we're taking Christ out of churches today? I don't know what you think. I think emphatically, yes. I, I think more and more we we neutralize everything, right? We, we do not preach of Christ and speak of Christ and prophesy of Christ. We we tend to let people just say, hey, whatever goes, and as long as you're good people, and all paths, you know, get there, and there's just a lot of uh, 
uh, forgetting that this fundamental role of the Savior in our lives. And, and I think that is what we got to return to. So I think there's something about this that, well, at first glance, we say, well, the Colossians, what were they doing? But if we look at our cultures, we probably say, yeah, that's probably exactly what we're doing. And it's easy to have it happen. So so let's dig in for a second. I want to turn to Colossians 1 and uh, review what Paul's going to say in this Christology, in this theology of Christ. He's going to circle back to this to, to really hit it strongly. So go to Colossians 1. And first he's he's going to do his his greeting, right? And then he is going to jump in to thanks for the Colossians. And that's where we meet um, Epaphras and some of those I mentioned already. And then jump down to verse 15. He's going to just in just a few short verses, talk about this fundamental. And I'm going to read it for those of you who don't have your scriptures out. And I'm going to read it in the NRSV. So you probably have it in the King James, but I'm going to read it in NRSV just so you have something else to reflect on. So I'm in verse 15, and I'm going to go through about 21. This is, he's going to talk about Christ and the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. Wow, is that is that now not an amazing summary of the gospel of Christ? Take a look and see if you don't see a few things. There were a couple things that jumped out at me and a couple that made me a little bit uncomfortable. And then others, I was like, yeah, that's awesome. The first one that jumps out at me and maybe it jumps out of you is this first line in 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Uh, The image is awesome, but the invisible God. Why do you think it says invisible God? Um, We know that when Christ appears to say Moses on Mount Sinai or to um, any, uh, whether it's Jacob uh, in the Jacob's ladder or to Isaiah in Isaiah 6 or Lehi in Nephi 1 or to Alma or anybody else that he appears to, um, it's Christ that's appearing. So I, I think the invisible God is is referencing something that we haven't seen the father or very few times, as you know, Joseph Smith, um, or the voice of the father, certainly. I love the word image. It's one that we have a lot. Can you think of the first time that you hear the word image used in the scriptures? Think about that for a second. Image, image, image. Mm. Mm. 
uh, right there in the first couple pages in the creation story that man and w woman were created. It says both of them in uh, Genesis 1, they were created in the image. We are his image. Now that word is awesome and powerful. And in Hebrew, that same word is the same word that is used for idols that were made. A literal structure, wood or stone or metal or something, right? A carving that was made in the image of God. And so they're saying you are in the literal image um, of God. How else besides looking like people uh, being his children and physical bodies, how else do you think we're in his image? And then why do you think idolatry is so frowned upon? Because instead of looking at yourself as the image of God, you're looking to something else. You're turning down your own um, importance as a child of God when we turn to idolatry or we look at something else. Um, that word is super powerful and just do a word study on image and man, you just, it's everywhere. So this being in the image of God is so powerful. Um, and then it talks more, right? He is the firstborn of all creation. Uh, and then later it talks about him being again, the firstborn from the dead. So he's the firstborn in two ways in verse 15 and in verse 18. He's the firstborn of all creation. How was he the firstborn? He's literally the firstborn um, of the father, but also he is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first to be resurrected, right? Powerful, powerful parallel there. And then uh, for in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Um, remember in the creation story, it's the heavens and the earth, right? The heavens and the earth. And it's not like our astrophysics where you're like, from the space shuttle or something and you can see the sphere uh, the way that they viewed it was like just think of you standing on the earth you can see heavens above and earth below and that was everything there might be something below that right kind of a, a hell or a shale or where the spirits went the spirit world but heavens and the earth were the two the two and and that's often used to to encompass everything in between so it's kind of the bookends the heavens and the earth it's called a merism and that tells you everything in between heavens and the earth and then he goes on to say everything is another merism, right? Everything, two bookends, the visible and the invisible. And he goes, Paul loves this idea of thrones and dominions and rulers and powers and things that were created. Now, we think of that as uh, good things, but he also uses that to talk about the evil that's in the world, that these thrones and principalities, that there is, there's something else out there that uh, this evil uh, that is out there as well. And so he is over both the good and the bad side of this unseen world. Again, talking of Christ, he is himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have first place in everything. Um, the King James says that in all things, he might have the preeminence. And then I love it refers back to our father for it pleased the father, pleased God, that in him should all fullness dwell. Right. He he was everything. Um, and then and yet he made peace through his blood on the cross to reconcile all things unto himself. Uh, everything was atoned for in that sacrifice. And yet we have something to do. And I love this part in 23. We can partake in this atonement, the sacrifice. But he says, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, right? We, we have to continue. We have to try hard. I uh, don't let's get you down. This isn't, you don't have to be made perfect, nothing like that, but, 
But you don't just check a box and get done. It says you have a hope and you have to stick with that hope. You have to keep hoping. You have to believe. You have to have faith. You have to persevere. We call it endure to the end. It has such a negative connotation that I like this. The one that it is, you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel, right? Never lose faith and hope that that gospel can change you, can save you. Ah, powerful. Oh, such good stuff. All right, scriptorians. We're about out of time, but that is all about Colossians, and we're going to jump back in and do a little bit more maybe later this week, but take a look and see if you don't see where we first see the structure of, yes, there's a problem with the false teachers, and then we're going to jump in, but this supremacy of Christ, go ahead and take a look at chapter one and see if you don't learn a little bit more about how he is the beginning and he is the head and body of the church. All right, until next time, keep on reading.